Today we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. Uh, Last week we finished off chapter 21, so today we will begin chapter 22 of the book of Matthew. Uh, If you were with us last week, you'll recall that uh, we looked at the beginning events of what traditionally uh, we believe took place on Tuesday uh, of the Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life before His crucifixion and the subsequent resurrection. And so as Jesus entered the city and began to teach there in the Jerusalem temple, the chief priest and the elders, they confronted Him, asking questions about the authority that Jesus had and, and where that authority came from. And you, if you were with us, you'll remember that Jesus told them that He wouldn't answer them unless they first answered Him a, a question about the ministry of John the Baptist. Okay? And when the religious leaders wouldn't answer His question, He too then said, well, then I'm not going to answer your question. Um, Jesus then started a, a series of three parables. And uh, they all centered upon the same idea of Israel's rejection of God. Okay? Uh, and so, as we looked at the first parable uh, last week, we uh, noted how it was the parable known as the parable of the two sons. Okay? And it pictured for us Israel's rejection of God, but specifically the Father. Okay? Um, Jesus told the religious leaders that they were like the second son who offered lip service to the father. They said the right thing, but inwardly there was no relationship. There was no uh, desire uh, to serve him. The second parable that we covered last week is known as the parable of the landowners, or landowners, excuse me. Uh, And it portrayed for us Israel's rejection of God, but specifically. God the Son, Jesus Christ. The parable spoke of a landowner sending his son to uh, his vine dressers, and the vine dressers killing the son. And we noted how this was a description of God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to the Jewish nation, and how they would have him crucified. So it kind of was in the past, but the tail end of it was talking prophetically, because that's going to happen in, in just a sh- few short days. For them, as it's Tuesday and traditionally crucified upon a, a Friday, and so uh, that picture of them killing the son was a prophetic picture. Okay? The third parable—it's the parable that we're going to be covering this morning. Okay, and it's a parable that uh, is commonly called the parable of the wedding feast, or perhaps the parable of the marriage feast. And I believe that it points to Israel's rejection of God through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked through the lives of the apostles and the disciples. And we can read about that in in the book of Acts. It's kind of a a continuation of the story, uh, uh, the book of Acts, a historical account. And so, uh, the... uh, Excuse me. Yes. Uh, One other thing about these uh, parables, not only do they depict Israel's rejection of God, God the Father, God the Son, and the parable that we'll look about upon today, God the Holy Spirit, I also believe that these parables parables were written to chronicle a historical timeline of God's working through the ministry of Jesus Christ. If you follow with it, the first parable, it mentions the ministry of the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist. Okay, the second parable speaks of the sending of Jesus Christ and His death. And the third, as we'll see, speaks of events that will happen after Jesus' death. Also, even though these parables relate primarily to Israel, I also believe there's application for us today. And uh, believe that we should learn and glean and grow from some of the uh, points that we'll make regarding Israel's rejection but I think there's an, a lesson in it for us as well. Okay? All right. Let's get into our study. 
Matthew chapter 22. Okay, open your Bibles, make your way there. Uh, if you haven't done so already, we're going to read verses 1 through 14 of Matthew chapter 22. And as we always do, I just entreat you and ask you to stand as we read today's portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 22. As I mentioned, we'll cover verses 1 through 14 today. Uh, the entire parable of the wedding feast. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come again. He sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Verse 7 But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would open our eyes, that we might be able to understand this parable, that we might be able to rightly divide your word. Lord, that we would understand what you were saying to those, uh, the chief priests, the elders, the, the people, the crowd that was there, uh, Lord, but that we would also understand what you want to say to us here in 2014 in Iwakuni, Japan. Lord, we want to come with an expectation that you are going to speak to us and that you are going to minister to us as we gather in this place. And so, Father... Lord, we ask that you would just do a work in our lives. Lord, that we would be open to your continued work in our lives. And we do thank you for the promise of your word that tells, tells us that you will complete the work that you began in us. And so, Father, we come today asking you to, to do a little bit more work in our lives. We all, I, I can confidently say, we all need it. And so, Father, uh, be with us, minister to us, Um, bless your word and bless our time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Jesus answers to the chief priest and to those among the crowd gathered together there at the temple with yet another parable. Okay? I know I've said this uh, before, uh, and I'll say it every time we talk about a parable, just because I think it's good to get a little something ingrained, but just the idea of what a parable is. A parable is an earthly story that conveys a heavenly truth, okay? And so when we study parables, we want to first understand the earthly story, and then we do our best to determine the heavenly truth that it's trying to explain or portray. Now, sometimes Jesus... Uh, he explains the, the parables for us. And those are always a little bit easier to teach than uh, ones that aren't explained. Uh, and sometimes the disciples, I kind of like them because sometimes they went to them and they said, Jesus, we didn't get it. Can you explain it to us, please? And, and so we get the explanation, and I like those ones too. Uh, this parable, we don't have that. Okay, And so we're going to try and figure this out. I believe... Uh, uh, that the Lord will reveal it to us and uh, hopefully we'll all be on the same page as far as what the Lord is saying to uh, the people there, but what he's also saying to us. Okay, 
So we're going to go through this parable verse by verse, and we're going to stop and do our best to identify the pieces of the puzzle so that we may comprehend what God is saying. Okay? Uh, and so we're going to identify the, the people, the places, the events, try and figure out what's going on here. Okay? So verse 2, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Okay? In verse 2, uh, Jesus begins by explaining that he's describing something about the kingdom of heaven. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is like, and he continues, okay? often Jesus referred to the kingdom of heaven when speaking in parables. Okay? All throughout the parables of Matthew chapter 13, uh, he spoke of the kingdom of heaven, the parable of the wheat and the tares. Okay? Uh, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the leaven, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet. Okay? All of them started with this same opening line, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then it gave us a description. The kingdom of heaven is not meant to apply only to a future kingdom in heaven. But moreover, it's a, a description of how God has operated and will operate within this world. Okay? When Jesus spoke of the kingdom of heaven in parables, he was also describing events and actions that were going to take place in this world. Uh, excuse me, events and actions uh, that were going to take place in the future of this world. All of the ones that start out, the kingdom of heaven is like, has an element of something that was going to happen that had not yet happened when he spoke those parables. Okay? And so we can safely assume, I believe, that what Jesus is about to say about the kingdom of heaven is going to describe something for us that has, is going to take place. It hasn't yet taken place. Okay? And so this parable, I believe... Uh, as with all of the parables regarding uh, the kingdom of heaven, and when Matthew specifically, he's the one that kind of grabs hold of this title. In fact, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, is only in the book of Matthew. And so Matthew, he grabs hold of this, uh, and it is a, a prophetic parable, they, as they all were, describing something that had not yet taken place when Jesus spoke it. Okay? Alright, so let's look at this parable and try to identify what Jesus is referring to. A future event not yet happened. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. So we'll pause right there and identify these individuals. Okay? Some elements of parables are easier to figure out than others. Okay? If Jesus is describing the kingdom of heaven which is what verse 2 says, who would the king represent in this parable? Okay? Who is the king in the kingdom of heaven? God. Very good. See, you guys are right on top of it. You guys could do this. You guys could do this anytime. All right. God. Very good. And in the kingdom of heaven, God has a son. Okay? Who is that? Jesus Christ. Very good. Okay, so now we've got it. These two people, we see the king and his son. It's referring to God the Father and his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? All right. We're told here that the king has arranged a marriage for his son. Now, despite what some would try to get you to believe within a liberal, you know, just wacky, crazy stuff, the pair, uh, like the, what was that, the gospel of Jesus' wife and the Da Vinci Code that says that he was married. And all, that's just bogus stuff. People trying to rewrite history. I don't give it any credit at all. Please don't read those things, okay? But despite what some may try to lead us to believe, we know that Jesus was never married while he lived here on earth, okay? However, in Scripture, we do see that Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. In Matthew 9, verse 15, Jesus spoke of himself when asked uh, why his disciples don't fast. You guys may recall that John, uh, the, John the Baptist's disciples, they came and they asked Jesus and the disciples, why don't your disciples fast? Okay? And Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
Jesus very clearly was identifying himself as the bridegroom when he spoke that. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist spoke of how he wasn't the Christ, but how he was sent before the Christ to proclaim his coming. And in verse 29 of John 3, John said, He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John was the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. And so he rejoiced to hear the voice of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And so if Jesus is the bridegroom, although not mentioned here, there's usually an assumption if there's a groom, there's also a bride. Very good. And so who then is the bride of the bridegroom? The church, okay, the church. Very good. Scripturally, we know that the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. You and I are a picture of that. Ephesians 5 directly correlates the relationship of a husband and wife to that of Jesus Christ and the church. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul describes the church as being betrothed to one husband and a desire for the church to be presented as a chaste virgin to Christ. In Romans, Paul wrote to them about being married to Him who is raised from the dead. Who's that? Jesus Christ, right? And so we see this picture of the church being the bride of Christ. Here we have a description of the union God had arranged for Jesus Christ and His bride, the church, there in verse 2. So let's move on to verse 3. We're kind of unpacking this as we go. Verse 3, it says... And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. The king sent out servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. Recall how I mentioned how I believe that these three parables serve to be a a sort of timeline of events. The, The events in this parable show the son as being alive where the events in the previous parable, the second parable that we covered, it actually shows that the son was killed. And so to me, as I look at that, uh, I believe that this this fact that the son is alive and awaiting a marriage speaks of events after Jesus' resurrection. This is important for us to note because understanding that this happens after Jesus' resurrection helps us to identify who these servants are. Okay? I believe that the servants are a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and disciples of Christ described in the book of Acts. Uh, A great Bible teacher and and just a favorite one of mine, John Corson, he points out that in his commentary, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to call people to the wedding to win a bride for Jesus Christ. God the Father sent His Spirit to woo a bride for His Son. This ministry of the Holy Spirit was deployed through the lives of men like Peter and John that boldly called and invited people to come to Christ. And who were those that were first invited to come to the wedding? Okay. The scriptures tell us that the gospel went out to a certain group first. Okay, before it went out to anybody else, it went to a one group, a specific group first. Romans 1.16 tells us that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so as we read of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, we see that the apostles, they first only went to the Jews. They didn't bring the message to the Gentiles or to anyone else. It was to the Jews only. And how did those who were first invited respond? They were not willing to come. This would be an amazing affront to a king. You imagine... Okay, uh, being invited to a royal wedding, 
I, I try to think of maybe like, you know, Prince William, and if you got invited to that wedding and you're like, mm, no, I don't want to go, you know, like, that would be pretty bold to do that. <laughs> um, but here he is. It's a, it's a royal wedding. It's a king, and he's invited you to come and be at the wedding of his son. And, and these people, they weren't willing to come. Okay? That's what this parable is describing. A, a people that just saying, ah, I don't care. A, a royal wedding. Okay? Those invited, they were not willing to come. Interestingly, the, the tense of this Greek verb, uh, being willing... It describes an ongoing action, okay? It's in the imperfect. It's the idea that repeatedly they had opportunities and repeatedly they said, nope, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm not willing to come. Over and over again, they would uh, respond similarly to this invitation. This picture for us, I believe, some of the Jews that were, that were just not willing to even entertain an invitation to come to Christ. Even though repeated opportunities were presented to them, they were not willing to come to Christ. It was their decision. They were invited to come, but they decided to be unwilling to come, disregarding the many opportunities given to them. Let's look at verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed. And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. The king is actually pictured here now seeming, excuse me, seeming to, you know, well, sending out another group of servants. Okay? You know, this new set of servants, I believe, is describing more people that were sent out by the Spirit to testify of Christ and to invite people to come to Him. The church, if you guys read through the beginning book, excuse me, the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, the church was growing and more and more people were testifying of the work of Jesus Christ through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And so we had another wave of people that came testifying of Christ. And the message they were sent to deliver makes it seem that the king is just pleading for those first invited. Please, come to the wedding. You would think that, that just simply receiving an invitation to come and partake of a royal wedding would be enough to draw people in. But it wasn't. Here the king, he has to plead with them and tell of all the preparations that have been made for them in an attempt to try and sweeten the deal, okay? And convince them to respond to this wedding invitation. The allusion to the already prepared dinner, I believe, is a description of the sufficient provision that the king supplies. Look, everything's here. Okay, we've got the ox and the fatted cattle. Everything's ready. I've taken care of everything for you. There was no need for the guests to bring anything to the wedding. Okay? Everything had been provided for. Okay? All they had to do was just come and enjoy the bounty of the king. I, I was thinking of, have you ever, you ever been invited to someone's house before? And then they say, oh, oh you say, oh, because you're polite. At least you try to be. You say, oh, what can we bring? And then when they say, oh, no, 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 don't bring anything, just come. And you're like, yes. Uh, but... Uh, my wife usually brings things anyways, but uh, she's good like that. But, you know, that idea that just come. I just want you to come. Hey, we're going to have a great time. We'll fellowship and everything's going to be provided. Don't worry about it. That's the idea here. You know, the, the king's saying, everything's taken care of. All, all you have to do is come. And to me, I, I believe this, of course, pictures for us the sufficiency of God's provision for us. God's provision, not of an axe, excuse me, an ox or a fatted cattle, but his very own son was sufficient enough for all of their needs. All they needed to do was come. Everything had been taken care of. All they had to do was come and enjoy the blessings of God. Verse 5 and 6, it describes their response to this second set of servants sent to them. Let's read. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. 
here we read of three different types of responses that came from those that were invited. The first two responses, they started similar by making light of it. Or as other translations put it, they paid no attention to it. Basically, they just didn't care what the king wanted, nor did they care about what the king provided. One part of this group that that didn't care about the king's invitation and his provision decided to go out to his farm. The other part went to his business. And then a third group of people responded. They responded with violence, seizing the servants and treating them shamefully and killing them. I believe this third group of people represents the leaders of Israel, those religious leaders that were placed in charge to represent God. As we see in the book of Acts, the persecution of the church spread rapidly. We read in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the account of Stephen, a man who was testified as being full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was falsely accused of blasphemy and seized by the elders and the scribes and placed before the Jewish council. And he testified of God's work before the Jewish council, starting with Abraham and working his way through history, describing the relationship Israel had with God and how they were constantly in rebellion towards God. And in verse 51 of chapter 7, Stephen declared, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. When the people heard Stephen's bold declaration, were told that they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen then gazed into heaven and he described seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And after they heard him say this, they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord and they cast him out of the city and they stoned him to death. Stephen was one of the Lord's servants that was sent with the power of the Holy Spirit to call people to come to Christ. And he was seized, treated spitefully, and killed. I believe a complete and accurate description of what Jesus spoke of here in this parable. As we consider these different responses to the invitation that the servants uh, declared um, and, and the the reception of that invitation, I I can't help but draw a parallel to today's world. There were some people who just weren't willing to come. They didn't have a reason for not coming. We're not told... uh, We're not told they they wanted to do something else. They, they They just didn't want to come. And you'll encounter people like that today. They hear the invitation to come to Christ and and they just don't want to come. They don't have a reason for not coming. They're just not willing to respond to the gospel. There were some people who paid no attention to the invitation and they went to their farms. They had work to do and couldn't be slowed down or hampered with responding to this invitation. And I believe you will come across people like that as well. Some people just don't want to take the time away from their busy life to consider the gospel message and to consider actually responding to the invitation. Another group of people paid no attention to the invitation and they went to their business. They didn't care about this king and what he was doing because they were too busy building their own kingdom. Again, you will encounter people like that too. Some people don't want to consider coming to Christ and being part of His kingdom because they're so focused on building their own kingdom, climbing up the chain of command or climbing up the corporate ladder, much too consumed with their own self to consider being a part of someone else's kingdom. And lastly, there were some who responded with anger and violence to the invitation. 
And they were enraged to hear about this invitation to come to a wedding and acted out in violence toward the king's servants. Let me tell you, there are people like that today as well. Some are scarier than others, but all can be dangerous. They will attack you verbally, uh, emotionally, some physically, pretty much any way they can. And you know what? The, what I believe is, is most often, why? It's because I believe it cu- cuts to the heart, like it did to those religious leaders. When Stephen boldly declared, this is your situation, you're stiff-necked, and you've always resist, resisted the Holy Spirit. It cut to the heart. Ooh, and it upset them. And when he started talking about Jesus being, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of, of God, they just wouldn't have anything of it. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of people that are like that. Oftentimes, those that are, are the most angry or the most upset when we tell them about the love of Christ, it's because it cuts so deep. And it hurts. They'd rather, like these religious leaders, they'd rather just stop up their ears, cry out loud, stop up their ears, and just do whatever they can to get you to stop. Don't, I don't want to hear that message at all. Do you know anyone in your life that would fit into one of these four categories? Maybe you've shared with them before and they just, they just didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. Or maybe they even got a little upset. They got a little heated. May I encourage you? Don't give up on them. Keep on sharing. Keep on praying. Don't give up on those around you that need to come to Christ because you may be the only ones that are willing to do that. And they need the Lord. And so they might reject it. They might say, I don't care about that. They might even get a little bit angry, but keep praying. Keep seeking opportunities to share the love of Christ with them. Don't give up on those around you. Verse 7. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. The king here finally responds. And and note with me who he directs his fury towards. He directed directed it towards the murderers. I think that's worth noting because those that were unwilling to come or or those that were indifferent or, or just too busy working or too busy building their kingdom, the king was not furious with them. They had a choice. The king allowed them that choice. But things changed when he heard about his servants being killed. It was the leaders of Israel who murdered the early believers, the apostles and the disciples of Christ. And the Lord's anger was kindled toward them because of their treatment of his servants. Their rejection of his servants that were empowered by the Holy Spirit pictures a complete and final rejection of God. Parable 1, rejection of God the Father. Okay? Uh, the parable of the two sons. The parable of the landowner, the second one. Rejection of God the Son. Here we are, the parable of the marriage feast or the wedding feast, and we have the rejection of God, specifically through the Holy Spirit and His acting through the lives of the disciples and the apostles of the early church. A complete rejection of God in totality, And their rejection, it caused God to finally act. God was left with having to respond to their complete rejection of Him. And He would send His armies to completely wipe them out and burn their city. Now, oftentimes we like to, you know, like maybe soften that. Because we feel like we don't want to make God out to be this guy who burns cities down, you know. But that's what the scriptures say. Okay? He was angry with them. They completely rejected him, and he said, you know what, there's consequences for doing that. And I mean, I'm not going to water it down. That's what it says. Okay? 
This prophetic judgment was carried out upon Jerusalem and her people in the year 70 AD. The Lord used the Roman armies as His own and had them lay waste to the city. The city, along with the temple, were destroyed by Titus, the future emperor of Rome. Interestingly enough, history tells us that Titus reportedly refused to accept a wreath of victory after the siege of Jerusalem was ended as he claimed that he had not won the victory on his own, but had been the vehicle through which their God, the God of Israel, had manifested his wrath against his people. Titus says, wasn't me. It was their God judging them. God used Titus and his armies to fulfill this prophetic word. And a great, you know, the temple was burned down. The city was burned down. A lot of people's lives were lost. I don't want to sound cold or, or you know, um, uncaring, but that, that was what, how God used. That's how God fulfilled this prophetic word. They completely rejected him, and there was a, a repercussion for that. Let's continue. Verse 8 and 9. It says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. The king still has everything set for the people to come to his son's wedding. That hasn't changed at all. But the first group he invited, they were not worthy of coming to the wedding. The idea of being worthy, it reminds me of the scripture that Jesus spoke to the disciples before he was crucified. If you guys remember when he, was, he sent them out, he gave them instructions. And if you guys want to look there, you can. I'll read Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you, go out into a, when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Those first invited, they were not worthy. And so it was time to move on to a, another place, to another people. The king directed his servants to go into the highways, the, the main roads, the busy streets filled with those passing by, and to invite them to the wedding. The king sent yet another group of servants out to invite people to come and be a part of his son's wedding. You know, those in the highways, it, it speaks about those people that are out and about, people that didn't necessarily dwell within this city, but passed through. And I believe this picture is for us God's switch of emphasis upon inviting the Jews first to now inviting the Gentiles. Opening up the gospel to all nations. For the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, God was focused on inviting the Jews to Christ. It was always them at the temple sharing the message of Christ sharing with the Jews, reaching out to the religious leaders, trying to correct their errors. Uh, but in chapter 8, there's a break from that. Okay. In chapter 8, because of the great persecution against the church, the church ended up being scattered throughout the region of Samaria and Judea. And Philip, he preached in Samaria. Okay. And people received the invitation. Okay? He spoke with an Ethiopian, and he received the invitation. In chapter 9, Saul, a great persecutor of the church, was converted, and he would become the apostle to the Gentiles. In chapter 10, Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, received the invitation to come, and the Holy Spirit fell upon him and all those who were with him. Later on, Paul would declare to the Jews... It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. You see, it wasn't God saying, you're not worthy. 
It was God saying, you've rejected it, and because you've rejected it, you've made yourself unworthy. By your own actions, you've made yourself unworthy of this invitation. Men like Philip and Paul and Barnabas, they represent that new wave of servants that were sent out to call the Gentiles to the wedding. And so we see these waves of servants being sent out. And we see how those portray, you know, that first wave of Peter and John, that second wave. You guys remember in Acts 6 when they had to find, we need people to help wait on tables. Stephen was one of those guys. Okay? And then we have a new wave. We've got uh, uh, Paul and, and, and Barnabas. You know, they're going out on missionary journeys. They're bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. These waves of servants being sent out, empowered by the Spirit. Verse 10 so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. Those servants went out and they gathered everyone they could find. Anyone that was willing to come and to respond to the invitation was welcomed. They gathered together a mixed group of both bad and good, filling the wedding hall. You know, I hope not to offend anyone here. But the bad and the good, it's us. It's the church. You see, the church is filled with people that were brought up in the church. They were what we would maybe describe raised properly for the most part. We would describe them as good people, even though we know that there's none good. But we would say they're good people. Okay? You know, and, and you may see uh, uh, that kind of person on the road, and you'd feel very comfortable. They're on the highway. I'm going to go up to them, and I'm going to invite them uh, to this wedding feast. It'll be great. But the church is also filled with people that have some questionable history. Okay? There, there's some people's testimonies that are downright scary to think of. Okay? And, and some of the people in the church, if you saw them on the street, you would turn around and run as fast as you can the other way. You wouldn't want to invite them to come hang out with you. And to me, that is one of the things that makes the body of Christ, the church, so beautiful. Being a part of the church is not based upon how good we are or how bad we are, but it's based upon simply responding to God's invitation to come. Some people think that they, they can come to Christ based upon their good works. Okay? They, I'm a really good person, but they can't. You know, and on the other extreme, we got some people that think they can't come to Christ based upon their past deeds, that they're too sinful, and that God can't extend an invitation to them because they've done too many bad things. Okay? That's simply not true. We've got a mix of people in here. And I don't know all of your testimonies, but I imagine if we all stood up here and shared, we might be shocked by some of your guys' testimonies. I know we would be shocked by some of your guys' testimonies. <laughs> Because I know some of your guys' testimonies. Okay? The invitation, it is given to all. Okay? And the responsibility is for us to simply respond. Let's keep going here. Verse 11. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. In the parable, the king enters in to see the guest, and immediately he sees a man that was not properly dressed. It would appear that perhaps the king had not only provided for a great feast, but that the king had also provided some proper attire for the wedding. Okay? I assume this based upon the fact that there could be no reasonable expectation that people pulled off the street would be in proper wedding attire. Okay? Um, people don't walk around in that kind of, you know, it was very fancy, you know, very nice looking garment. And if you're walking around the streets, you're probably not in a wedding garment. And so I assume uh, that the king was providing them. Some commentators actually suggest that it was customary for a king or nobleman to offer his guest a garment to wear at such a, uh, an occasion. 
I've never been in a restaurant like this, but I've heard of restaurants where you go, and if you don't have a, a, a tie, they'll, here's your tie, you've got to wear it. Uh, and so maybe that kind of idea, you've got to come, but you're not properly attired, so here's, here's the wedding garment that you need to be wearing. David Guzik, another favorite Bible commentator of mine, pastor, he says, there seems to have been some tradition of this among the Greeks that is you know, evidenced, and you can go and see this, but there's no evidence of the practice uh, within Jews, at least within the days of Jesus. None that's hardcore evidence. So it is a little bit of speculation. Now, whether or not the garments were supplied isn't as important as noting that the king easily identified the man that was not wearing the proper attire. The king goes to the man, he inquires as to how the man was able to enter without a wedding garment onto, uh, and, and to which the man, when he, he didn't say anything, he was speechless. I believe that this portion of the parable is speaking about those, those in the church who are not of the church. People who may go to church, but they're not part of the church. The fact that this man did not have the proper attire, I believe, speaks of him not being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah 61 verse 10, it actually speaks of being clothed with the garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness. And it's described as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so this idea of wedding garments, well, Isaiah 61 says that those are representative of, of a, a robe of righteousness or a, a, um, a garment of salvation. And so using the same imagery of this robe of righteousness, uh, we read in the New Testament that we are to put on Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 13 verse 14 tells us that. And that the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus is on all of us. Those that are in Christ, they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have that robe of righteousness. That garment of salvation has been given to us who are in the church the wedding garment is a picture of Jesus Christ, okay? And we must put Christ on in order to truly be part of the church, okay? If we don't have Christ, we're really not part of the church. You can come to the church. We'll love on you and we're going to hopefully get you to come and be part of the church, but you can come and sit here and it doesn't mean that you have Christ. And, and there was someone there Amongst the good and the bad, we're not told if he was one of the guys that appeared good or appeared bad. But he, didn't, he was not properly attired. He did not have Christ. I find it interesting that uh, I was looking at the word that the king addressed this person. He called him friend. And it's interesting because I looked that word up and it really speaks volumes as to what is going on here. The classical Greek occurrences of this masculine form of the English word here used as friend, it refers to, and I quote from the lexicon that I like to use, says, it refers to um, comrades or companions who were mostly followers of a chief. They were not necessarily companions for the sake of helping the chief, but for getting whatever advantage they could. This friend... Okay? as the king referred to him, was someone that was just trying to take advantage of a generous situation. They didn't really care about the king or his son or the wedding. They were just there to take part of the day. They've got a feast here. That's great. You know, I'll take care of all, all these blessings. That's great. Okay? I don't want anything to do with the, the, the king or the son. That's this, this word friend. That's what this means. Okay? It's a companion that, that it's not there for the sake of the chief, but there just to get whatever they can get out of it. Thus is the, the same with those in the church today who come not because of their love of the Lord or the love of God's Son, but so that they can get something from the church. A lot of people abuse the church. Okay? Looking to get what they can get from it. Take it and, and leave it. and No investment. I'll just, just take, take, take. And that's not a great representation. This guy was not in the church. 
When these people stand before the Lord and they are confronted, they will have no excuse for their actions. They will be speechless. Because if they come to church and they sit, they're going to hear the message, they're going to hear the gospel, and if they don't respond to it, guess what? They have no excuse. If you come here today and, and you don't know Christ, and you listen to the gospel, and then you leave without responding to it, you have no excuse. This man, he couldn't say anything. He was speechless. Well, the Lord's going to deal harshly with this person. Let's read what he does. Verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, of course, a picture of hell. Those that are not properly clothed in the righteousness of Christ will one day be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is an expression of of great sorrow and anguish that will be constant. For those that are, are separated from God in hell, it will be a constant anguish and sorrow. You will constantly be weeping. Gnashing of teeth is an expression of great anger and resentment. One commentator commentator described it as being like a wild bull in a net full of fury. You just get like, you know, mad, you know. You grit your teeth, you're gnashing your teeth. You're so angry, you're so bitter at God. You know what? There's some people out there that will try and teach you that hell's really not real. Okay? But the scriptures do not support such a theory. Hell is a very real place. It's a place that you do not want to go to. Hell is a place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty five forty one says, It's a very real place, a place of torment, a place God would rather you not go. That's why he sent his son. And that's why he sent to you invitation to come to the wedding. But he does give to us the option. If we don't want to put on the righteousness of Christ, if we don't want to respond to what he's offered, he'll let you go there by your own choice and by your own decision. Verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus closes the parable with a summary phrase describing the events of the parable, really. When Jesus said, many are called, I believe he's referring to the many that were called to come to the wedding. Many were called by the servants. Those not willing to come were called. Those who made light of the invitation were called. Even those that responded violently to the invitation, they were called to take part. All those in the highways were called. The good were called. The bad were called. The man did not have on that man that did not have on the wedding garment was called. But few were chosen. Few were received into the wedding hall in comparison to the great number of people that were called and invited to partake. You know this this statement about many being called but few being chosen. Uh, In this context, I believe it touches on the great working together of the choices of man and the choosing of God. Some have difficulty with the relationship between man's choosing and the choosing of God. Some would rather eliminate man's choosing from the equation, while others would prefer to have it the other way around. The way I see it here is that they are both working together. Both are described before us by Jesus in this parable. Clearly, Jesus is holding the Jewish nation accountable for the choice that they made. Just as He holds us accountable to the choices that we make. And at the same time, clearly Jesus indicates that those who did respond, they were chosen. They were chosen by God to do so. One might say, well, how does that make sense? You know what? 
I don't know. And if I can't explain everything about God and how He works, I'm still okay with that. What I'm going to teach is what the Bible teaches, and the Bible seems to be clear here that there is a balance. These people are going to be held responsible for the choice that they made. And yet, at the same time, God chose those guys. How do you explain it? I don't know. I just believe it. Hopefully, you will be able to do that as well. Not to say, oh, don't think about it. Challenge yourself. Know the sides. Know where you're at. But realize, hey, sometimes we're just talking about two different sides of the same coin. Today we looked at this parable Jesus used to describe Israel's future rejection of God the Holy Spirit and His work through the apostles and the early believers. And although the immediate context applied to Israel, I also believe the Lord is desiring to speak to us this morning. This parable is a good reminder for us regarding the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of an individual. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to call people to Christ. John 16, verse 8 tells us that when He, the Holy Spirit, has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit comes alongside an individual and convicts them and shows them their need for Christ. The Spirit calls us and convicts us. But we are responsible to respond to the calling and to respond to that conviction. Just as the people in this parable were responsible for responding to the invitation, we too must respond. Okay, No response or an indecisive response is still a response not to receive the invitation. There was some there, I'm just not willing to consider it. Okay? Others said, I don't really care about it. That's a decision not to receive the invitation. And if you choose not to respond to the ministry of the Holy Spirit calling you into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will end up suffering the same fate as the man that was not clothed in Christ. You will be deciding to choose hell over heaven. A choice that I believe to be the worst mistake anyone could ever make. And I hope that each and every one of us here today that we have made that decision in our lives to receive God's invitation to a relationship with Jesus Christ. However, if you're here and you have yet to respond to the Holy Spirit's working in your life and you sense that He is calling you out today, today an invitation has been presented to you. And you have a responsibility to respond. If you've already responded, that's great. But if you haven't, you have. I hope that's what you understand. When you say, I haven't made that decision yet, you have made that decision. And it's not a good decision. You know, if you are here and you feel like the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, He is convicting you, He's telling you, you need Christ in your life. I'm going to make myself available to you. I'd love to pray with you, to encourage you to make that decision today. And so what we're going to do here today is uh, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And then Walter and the team, they're going to come back up and we'll finish off in one more song. But I'm going to stand up here to the side. okay? And if you feel as though you need to respond to the invitation, I want to make myself available to you to come up and I will pray with you. And if... You're here and, and you know the Lord. I'm, uh, Nick, you know, I'm going to call you out right now. Nick, if, if you don't mind making yourself available, if other people come forward and I'm praying with someone, we pray with them, please. Don't leave here undecided. Know where, you're, where you stand. Okay? Let me pray. Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you that um, we can dive into it and we can uh, look at other portions of Scripture and we can understand and and decipher it and and see what you're saying, not only then, but what you're saying today, Lord. And I believe, I believe in my heart that this was a, uh, that this pictures the work of your Spirit, not only in, in the lives of those in the early church and how you sent them out, 
to, to reach first the Jews, but then after that, just anybody who would respond to it, Lord. That same invitation that went out to anybody who would respond to it is still available to us today. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that has not made that decision, that they would be bold enough to say, I need to make that decision. And I need to make a, a good decision, a prayerful decision. And Lord, that you would minister to their heart and show them their need for you. Lord, I thank you that your, your sacrifice was sufficient for us. Lord, the, the, the wedding that you talked about and how it, you know, everything was prepared. Everything's been done. There's nothing that we need to bring. We don't bring anything to the table but our broken lives. And you, and you just bless it. And, and you wash it. And you cleanse it from the sin in our lives. And so, Father, I just pray that if the Spirit is moving, that we would respond to it. Lord, for those who know you, Lord, I pray that they would just be praying. Praying, maybe not for people here, just people they know that need to respond to the message of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the, the message that is the Holy Spirit brings in the life of an individual. So, Father, we just want to remain in the attitude of prayer as we sing this last song. May you be honored. May you be glorified. We ask this all in Jesus' name.